0: Episode 5 of my Leaders of the Civil War podcast. This podcast will be dedicated to E. Porter Alexander. And we're going to start by reading a portion of the book Gettysburg, The Last Invasion by Alan Gelzo. The sheer noise of the ripple of fire along the massed line of Confederate batteries, followed by the unremitting blast of fire from two miles worth of artillery beggared description, Hidden in the family cellar on Baltimore Street, the vibrations could be felt by young Albertus McCreary, and the atmosphere was so full of smoke that we could taste the saltpeter. Behind the Confederate lines, Teamsters parked two or three miles away declared that the sashes of the windows of buildings were were shook and chattered as if shaken by a violent wind. Both the detonation of the guns and the crack of the exploding shells overhead "'joined in one deme- demonic chorus composed of the crash of bursting spherical, spherical case, "'the howl of rifle shell, and the wicked hiss of solid Whitworth. "'Given the low muzzle velocities of the Civil War artillery, "'some Union soldiers soldiers discovered that if they if you rolled on your back "'and looked up into the heavens, "'it was possible to pick out solid shot and shell as they sailed overhead.' And in the 12th New, New Jersey, several men uh, kept track of multiple lines of flying projectiles. We turned our backs, look up, and trace the course of the shells. We could see a dark line flit across overhead, and others crossed this toward every point on the compass. These are quotes taken from soldiers on the ground during the largest artillery barrage ever in the Western Hemisphere. This was arranged, of course, by E.P. Alexander in Gettysburg. I picked the subjects of my first four podcasts because I thought they were people I would love to sit and talk with or have dinner and drinks with, although I don't drink, or even have a cigar. These were fascinating people who had an impact on the world, and I believe E.P. Alexander is no different. In fact, he may be the most interesting person I've researched yet. He played an active role in First Bull Run and every battle of the Army of Northern Virginia right up to Appomattox. In fact, he set the last line of Confederate defense before the surrender at Appomattox. He helped create and fly the uh, South's first and only observation balloon. He was young, cocky, ambitious, and smart, probably a genius, and he knew it. He was uh, energetic, and he could do just about anything on the battlefield, and all of his commanders knew this, including Longstreet, PGT Beauregard, Joseph E. Johnston, and Robert E. Lee, His artillery played prominent roles in the battles of Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, and the Overland Campaign. He was not only a brilliant officer and field commander, but the Confederacy's most versatile one as well, performing a wide variety of roles besides gaining a reputation as Lee's Lee's most talented artillery officer. Edward Porter Alexander was born into a prominent slave-holding family in 1835 on a small plantation in Washington, Georgia. He was the sixth of ten children of Adam Leopold and Sarah Gilbert Alexander. He graduated from West Point in 1857, third in his class of 38 cadets, and was made second lieutenant of engineers right away. After a quick trip to Utah at the end of the Mormon Uprising, he returned to West Point to teach and to participate in a number of weapons experiments. He worked as an assistant to Major Albert J. Meyer, the inventor of the code for the wigwag signal flags, a system that would later be used by both Union and Confederate forces in the coming war. In fact, he testified about the wigwag signal system to, the Senate, uh, to a Senate uh, committee and impressed uh, then U.S. Senator Jefferson Davis. Alexander met uh, Betty Mason, uh, who he called Miss Teen, in 1859 and married her on April the 3rd, uh, 1860. They would eventually have six children, and later in that year, he was ordered to remote Washington Territory, where he loved the wilderness, and especially the hunting and fishing uh, and quiet lifestyle. But the firing on Fort Sumter destroyed all this, although offered a chance to stay on the, uh, in the West Coast with the U.S. Army and keep, uh, keep out of the fighting, Alexander felt a deep responsibility to join his family and state in support of the Confederate cause. So then he resigned from the army and returned home to Georgia. Now we're going to skip forward uh, to 32 years after the war in 1897 President Grover Cleveland asked Alexander to arbitrate a boundary dispute between Nicaragua and Costa Rica. President Cleveland was hoping to use this as an opportunity to eventually construct a canal across Central America. Of course, this was uh, before the Panama Canal existed. Alexander spent two years at the head of that commission, headquartered in the coastal village of Greytown, Nicaragua. And during this time, his daughter Bessie knew he would be bored in the evenings and sent him two ledger books and asked him to finally write down his remembrances of the war. He had a few books with him and his diary that he had taken with him as references, but most of what he wrote was actually from his own memory. The book was written for his children and was not ever intended for publication. Now, his personal memoirs, garnered from these ledgers written down in Greytown, Nicaragua, were finally published Posthumously in 1989, or 90 years later, the editor, Gary Gallagher, had this to say about them Almost completely unaffected by the myth making of the lost cause, Alexander had no special case to plead. His tone was detached, analytical, and very impartial. Indeed, a common reaction among Southerners was that Alexander had been too critical of Lee and Jackson. Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Jefferson Davis, and a host of lesser confederates came in for substantial criticism, where he thought the southern people as a whole might have been wrong, as in their tendency to rely on divine intervention to sustain their cause. He bluntly said so, nor did he excise profanities in quoting conversations. He was honest, blunt, smart, careful, uh, and he was in a category by himself. Now, having read the memoir, it flows to me like the rise and fall of the Confederacy. And it's actually the most entertaining memoir I've ever read. It's considered by historians to be the most accurate and rigorous of all published accounts of the Civil War. You can tell uh, that he had a passionate streak, and he was saved from his own passions on three different occasions by intervening influences. And we'll discuss one of those that occurred at Appomattox here in just a bit. He's very critical of many aspects of the Confederate mindset, especially the role of religion, uh, and also he's interestingly he interestingly de- documents the dramatic de- dramatic decreasing value of com- uh, Confederate money over time. Uh, it includes amazing anecdotes and personal stories, and reads like a hero's journey right along with an oracle, and this oracle comes in the form of James B. McPherson who we will discuss here, uh, who himself fell victim to his own prophecy. From Alexander's memoirs, starting with the period right after the firing on Fort Sumter, we read the following. On the 20th of April, we steamed in through the Golden Gate to San Francisco Harbor. As we touched the wharf, a special messenger came aboard with special orders from me sent by the Pony Express. I was ordered to report to Lieutenant James B. McPherson for duty upon Alcatraz Island. This is the same James B. McPherson who would become a Union General, commander of the Army of Tennessee, and would be killed in the Battle of Atlanta. So, of course... Uh, of a day or two, I had a talk with McPherson telling him that I felt bound to resign and go home. McPherson's reply was remarkable for its foresight and appreciation of the real situation and its plain common sense and its real kindness and affection, which I prompted it, appealed to me very deeply. He said, Alec, if you must go, I will do all I can to facilitate your going, but don't go. These orders sent by Pony Express to stop you here are meant to say to you that if you wish to keep out of the war which is coming, you can do so. You will not be required to go into the field against your own people, but will be kept out on this coast on fortification duty. General Totten likes you and wants to keep you in the Corps, and that is what this order means. Now this is going to be This is not going to be a 90-day affair or six-month affair, as some of the politicians are predicting. Both sides are in deadly earnest, and it is long and desperate and fought out to the bitter end. If you go as an educated soldier, you are sure to be put on the front rank and where the fighting will be hardest. God only knows what will happen to you individually, but for your cause there can be but one result. It must be lost. You have practically none of the manufacturers, the machine shops, coal and iron mines, and such things which are necessary to support armies and carry on war on a large scale. You are but scattered agricultural communities and will be isolated from the world by blockades. It is not possible for your cause to succeed in the end, and the individual risks you must run, meanwhile, will be great. On the other hand, if you stay out here, you will soon be left the ranking, and perhaps the only engineer officer on the Pacific Coast. You will get promotion, for the chances of battle are sure to make many vacancies in the ranks. You will have charge of all the government reservations. On Lime Point, there are 10,000 acres all growing up in wild oats. Buy a flock of sheep and hire a Mexican to herd them, and in four years you will be a rich man. The city of San Francisco, too, is filling with water lots, and the engineer corps is consulted, and you will be able to make a good, good investments. In short, remaining here, you will have every opportunity for professional reputation, for promotion and wealth. Going home, for you, going home you have every personal risk to run, and in a cause foredoomed to failure. Nothing could exceed the kindness and real affection with which McPherson urged these views on me. He was one of the most attractive and universally popular men whom I ever met. There was a gentleness and a refinement about him which was almost feminine. He was one of those whom a man might love almost like a woman. Physically, too, he was a rarely fine specimen. The equestrian statue of him in Washington City is a wonderful success and conveys an excellent idea of him in face, figure, and carriage. I never miss an opportunity to pass it by. Of all the people I knew and talked with over the coming war, his judgment and foresight was clearest. It even seems as if there were there was a premonition of his own fate in his urging the promotion which the casualties of battle would surely bring. Now, of course, Alexander did not heed that warning, and he did go on to, uh, to Richmond to become part of the general staff of Confederate generals P.G.T. Beauregard, Joseph E. Johnston, and Robert E. Lee. And then he would go on to become the world's best known artillerist. At the beginning, he was chief of ordnance and chief signal officer in the army, among other things. Now, the chief of ordnance was responsible for getting all of the ammunition and all of the weapons into the hands of the combatants in the field. So that was a very, very big job. Now let's move on to the seven days' battles. To set the stage, this was all during McClellan's failed peninsular campaign. Robert E. Lee had taken over for the wounded Joseph E. Johnston and developed a complex plan with the cobbled together Confederate forces around Richmond to smash McClellan's right flank using Jackson's forces who were just then returning from their immensely successful valley campaign. Now, Alexander heaped praise on Stonewall Jackson for his performance in the Valley campaign, which was, quote, unsurpassed in all military history for brilliance and daring, unquote. But now he says the following about uh, Stonewall Jackson. General Lee's best hopes and plans were upset and miscarried and how he was prevented from completely destroying and capturing McClellan's whole army and all its stores and artillery by the incredible slackness and delay and hanging back which characterized General Jackson's performance on his part of the work. General Jackson, with his great force, did not move, and the only reason he did not is that it was Sunday. For myself, I believe that one defect in General Jackson's character as a soldier was his religious belief. He believed with absolute faith in a personal God watching all human events with a jealous eye to his own glory, ready to reward those who made it their chief care and to punish those who forgot about it. Jackson would arrest members of his army who didn't sufficiently res- respect the Sabbath. Oh, the ri- rivers of good blood that flowed that evening all in vain and all as I verily believe because General Jackson had remembered the Sabbath day and to keep it holy and then trusted to the Lord for victory. Now, Alexander was on Lee's staff through Second Bull Run and through the Maryland Campaign, and Lee formed a very high opinion of Alexander. He was always interested in artillery and wrote a white paper about about artillery strategy in 1861 on a better way to organize artillery into battalions, which caught the attention of many of the top generals, including General Pendleton, who was the the, uh, head of Lee's artillery at the time. Now, uh, just after Antietam, uh, Alexander took over Stephen D. Lee's artillery battalion when he was promoted and transferred to the Western Theater. Lee then reorganized his artillery according to Alex's proposal and put him in charge of one of the best artillery reserve battalions in Longstreet's Corps. He loved the artillery, uh, Alexander loved, and he loved the technical aspects uh, they really appealed to his analytical mind, and he was very, st- very intelligent and strategic in his thinking. Now, immediately after this promotion, he, was, he showed his brilliance at artillery by directing Longstreet's ar- artillery at the Fredericksburg Battle in December of 1862. His artillery was the primary reason Union efforts to take Mary's Heights failed, and he wrote the following about, his, about this attack. General Longstreet says that I reported to him that a chicken could not find room to scratch where I could not rake the ground. I don't recall it, but it's very possible I said something of the sort. It was exaggeration, but the ground was so thoroughly covered that I never thought Burnside would choose that point of attack. Now, Alex, before the, uh, the battle actually started, Alexander wrote the following uh, about that period. The whole Federal Army had broken up camps, packed their wagons, and moved out on the hills, ready to cross the river as soon as the bridges were completed. Over 100,000 infantry were visible, standing apparently in great solid squares upon the hilltops for a space of three miles scattered all over the slopes were endless parks of ambulances, ordnance commissary, quartermaster, and regimental white-topped wagons, also parked in close squares and rectangles, and very impressive in the sense of order and system which they conveyed. And still more impressive to military eyes, through less conspicuous and showy, were the dark-colored parks of batteries of artillery scattered here and there among them. Then, in front, was the three-mile line of angry, blazing guns Firing through white clouds of smoke and almost shaking the earth with their roar. Over and in the town, the white winkings of the bursting shells, reminding one of of countless swarms of fireflies. Several buildings were set on fire, and their black smoke rose in remarkably slender, straight, tall columns for 200 feet, perhaps before they began to spread horizontally and unite in a great black canopy. And over the whole scene there hung high in the air, above the rear of the Federal lines, two immense black captive balloons, like two great spirits of the air attendant on the coming struggle. Now, after the battle was over and the defeated Union army retreated back across the Rappahannock, he writes the following, which is really quite funny. One amusing incident happened to me as we entered the town. Quite a few citizens of the place, from one cause or another, had remained in the city during the whole period of the battle, taking refuge in cellars when either we or the federal shelled it. As I went in with the skirmish line, I found a citizen coming out with a musket and a bayonet marching in front of him, a federal soldier. The prisoner was a rather small Dutchman in brand-new uniform with most complete and extensive equipment and knapsack, haversack, canteen, overcoat, rubber cloth, tin cup, bags of ground coffee and sugar, and all sorts of little tricks I never saw before. And everything was that neat that it was plain that the man was one of those old maid types with a genius for making himself comfortable. And that was how he came to be a prisoner. Uh, His captor gave me the impression, I don't know why, of being a clerk in a drugstore. Where did you get this man, I, I said, as he came near. He slipped into my cellar last night and went to sleep there. All the rest of the Yankees went across the river during the night and he never knew it. I found him still asleep there of the morning and just took him prisoner and marched him out to give him to you. Very good, I said. And turning to the prisoner, I asked him, to what regiment do you belong? 144 Pennsylvania, he said with a very Dutch accent. Immediately, the captor leveled his bayonet on him and actually yelled, God damn you, did not I tell you if you said that again, I'd bayonet you, you damned lying blank. He left it blank there. And he, said, he was apparently really about to give the fellow a taste of the steel when I stopped him. Hold on, what's the matter? What are you, why are you threatening this man? Why didn't you hear what he said? He only answered my question. I asked his regiment and he obliged to reply. But didn't you hear what that son of a bitch said? that he said the 144th Pennsylvania. Don't you see? That's just a damn Yankee trick, that they're, they've are they just left this fellow here on purpose to tell that lie and try to demoralize our men by making them think there are 144 regiments in the Army of Pennsylvania. Pshaw! I said, they've got over 200 in some states, but it isn't half enough yet to whip this army, so don't stick him but take him along to our line. Our boys would not care if he was one of the 500th Regiment. So I sent him on and hoped the prisoner made, it, made the trip safely, but I never heard any more from either of them. At Chancellorsville, he rode with Jackson's Column around the Union right flank, and then later recognized the importance of Hazel Grove as a means of driving the Federals out of Chancellorsville. It was Alexander's guns on May 3rd that allowed Robert E. Lee to unite the two wings of his army and then drive Hooker out of Chancellorsville. He wrote the following uh, about this battle. On the whole, I think this plan was decidedly the best strategy conceived in any of the campaigns ever set On foot against us, and the execution of it was also excellently managed up to the morning of May 1st. And the conjunction of Lee and Jackson at the head of the column meant that it was to be a supreme effort, a union of audacity and desperation. Now, by this time, he became the de facto chief of artillery for the Army of Northern Virginia, even though Pendleton had the title he was actually directing the artillery for both of Lee's two corps. Now let's talk about Gettysburg. Alexander was in overall control of Lee's artillery and oversaw the bombardment of the Union line in preparation for Pickett's charge on uh, July 3rd, as we discussed earlier. For the Gettysburg Battle, Alexander devoted over 100 pages of his narrative, and most historians consider his account to be the best and most accurate depiction of the battle. In fact, many books uh, quote his narrative uh, as the majority of their material. While most of his comrades after the war wished to blame Longstreet or Stuart for the Confederate failure at Gettysburg, Alexander believed most of the blame should go to Lee himself. Like the rest of the army, Alexander had tremendous affection for Lee, but he was also willing to criticize him, and this made him quite a singular figure. You can uh, read the following from his memoir. Yet in my humble opinion, it was bad play to let our cavalry get out of touch and reach of our infantry, and the first axiom of war is to mass one's strength. Then and only then can its fullest power be brought into play. As before stated in the account of Chancellorsville, I believe Hooker's defeat was due to the absence of his cavalry on just such a useless raid as this. Then he went on to say, I think it is reasonable estimate to say that 60% of our chances for a great victory were lost by our continuing the aggressive at, at Gettysburg. And we may easily imagine the boon it was to General Meade, who was neither a man of high degree of decision or of aggression, and who was now entirely new to his great responsibility and evidently oppressed by it, to be relieved from the burden of making such a difficult decision such as he would have to do if Lee had been satisfied with his victory in the first day and then had taken a strong position and stood on the defensive. Now the gods had flung to Mead more than imprudence itself could have dared to pray for, a position unique among all battlefields of the war, certainly adding 50% to his already superior force, and an adversary stimulated by success to an utter disregard for all physical disadvantages and ready to face for nearly three-quarters of a mile of the very worst of all his artillery and infantry could do. For I am impressed by the fact that the strength of the enemy's position seems to have cut no figure in the consideration of the question of the aggressive, nor does it seem to have systematically examined, been sy- systematically examined or inquired into, nor does the night seem to have been utilized uh, in any preparation for the morning. Verily, that night was a pie for mead. Now, after returning from uh, Gettysburg... Alexander accompanied the first Corps to northern Georgia in the fall of 1863 to reinforce General Braxton Bragg for the Battle of Chickamauga. He personally arrived too late to participate in the battle, but he served as Longstreet's chief of artillery in the subsequent Knoxville campaign and in the Department of East Tennessee in early 1864. During this time, he wrote... uh, The following anecdote about stopping at a house in eastern Tennessee to ask directions. A little girl, about eight years old, opened the door. Wishing to inquire about the neighboring roads, we asked, Sissy, are any of the grown people at home? She stepped back and surveyed us head to foot and answered our question with another. What I want to know is, are you Reb or A yank or a bushwhack. After this, he returned with the Corps to Virginia for the remainder of the war, now with the rank of Brigadier General as of February 1864. He served in all the battles of the Overland Campaign, otherwise known as the Wilderness Campaign. And when Ulysses S. Grant slipped around Lee's army to cross the James River and assault Petersburg, Alexander was able to move his guns quickly through the lines in placing them to repel the main attack. Now, just before the Wilderness Campaign, he writes the following very stirring account. Lee honored our return to his command with a review. It was the first review held since the Shenandoah Valley after Sharpsburg in 1862. General Lee was not given to parades merely for, merely for show. Now I am sure he felt and reciprocated the stirrings of that deep affection in the hearts of his men, inseparable from our return upon the eve of which all felt must be the struggle to the finish. It was the last review we ever held, and no one who was present could ever forget the occasion. It took place in a cleared valley with extensive pastures in which our two divisions of infantry and our guns could be massed. It was over 40 years ago, but I can see now the large square gate posts without gate or fence marking where a broad country road led out to a tall oak wood upon an open knoll, in front of the center of our long gray lines. And uh, as the well-remembered figure of Lee upon Traveler at the head of his staff rides between the posts and comes out upon the knoll, my bugle sounds a signal and my old battalion thunders out a salute and the general reins up his horse and bears his good gray head and looks at us and we shout and cry and wave our battle flags and look at him again. For suddenly, as a wind, a wave of sentiment, two such as can only come from, a lar- from large crowds in full sympathy, something like what came a year later at Appomattox, seemed to sweep over the field. Each man seemed to feel the bond which held us all to Lee. There was no speaking, but the effect was that of, of a military sacrament in which we pledged anew our lives. Now, the Wilderness Campaign was dark and ugly and bloody, but Alexander gained great respect for Union General Grant during this struggle. In fact, he said the following, Grant was undoubtedly a great commander. He was the first which the Army of the Potomac ever had who had the moral courage to fight his army for what it was worth. He also had this anecdote about the fierce sh- uh, sharpshooting that took place during the wilderness campaign. And while on the subject of sharpshooting, I will mention one incident illustrating its severity. Every night, each gun was ordered to double be double-shotted with canister, ready for instant use in case of a night attack. One of Cabal's Napoleons had had its wheels so cut and torn by bullets one evening that it was thought best to put on new wheels. This was done, and the breech of the gun was elevated, and 38 musket balls fell out, which must have gone down its muzzle during that day. Now, at the end of the wilderness campaign, Alexander had this to say about Grant's brilliant strategy to plunge the entire Union Army away from Cold Harbor across the James River to Petersburg, which spelled the end, uh, really, for the Confederacy. But Grant devised a piece of strategy all his own, which seems to me the most brilliant stroke in all the federal campaigns of the whole war— it was, by somewhat roundabout roads, but entirely out of observation, to persist, preci- precipitate his whole army upon Petersburg, which was held by scarcely 6,000 men. If he succeeded in capturing it, a speedy ac- ac- evacuation of Richmond would follow, and he would be in a position to make the retreat a disastrous one. Not only was this strategy brilliant in conception, for which all the credit, I believe, belongs to General Grant, but the orders and details of such a rapid movement of so mighty an army, with all of its immense trains and its artillery across two rivers on its own pontoon bridges, make it also the most brilliant piece of logistics of the war. For this, of course, the credit is largely undaunted confidence and pertinacity led him to hurl his whole army corps after corps for three days against those beautiful Petersburg lines and General Lee did not have a soldier there to to greet them. Grant had gotten away from us completely and was fighting Beauregard. The Army of Northern Virginia had lost him and was sucking its thumbs by the roadside 25 miles away and wondering where he could be. Three exclamation points. That was the time and the place, the day and the hour when the last hope of the Confederacy died down and flickered out. The last flicker was about 8 a.m. Wednesday, June fifteenth, 1864, between Malvern Hill and Riddell's shop. It was not in the crash and excitement of battle. It was in the weary waiting by the road, with all accoutrements on, and the men wondering whether the halt is for minutes or hours. Now, during the Petersburg siege, in documenting the tragic crater incident, Alexander witnessed witnessed the atrocities that were committed by rebel soldiers against black soldiers who were caught in the crater. He says the following. In fact, there were comparatively very few Negro soldiers taken, or prisoners taken that day. It was the first occasion on which any of the Army of Northern Virginia came in contact with Negro troops. And the general feeling was the men toward their employment was very bitter. The sympathy of the North for John Brown's memory was taken for proof of a desire that our slaves should rise in servile insurrection and massacre throughout the South. And the enlistment of Negro troops was regarded as advertisement of that desire and encouragement of the idea to the Negro. That made the fighting on this occasion exceedingly fierce and bitter on the part of our men, not only towards the Negroes themselves, but sometimes even to the whites along with them. Note Major Powell's remark about the use of the bayonet in the charge upon the crater. Some of the Negro prisoners who were originally allowed to surrender by some soldiers were afterwards shot by others, And there was, without doubt, a great deal of unnecessary killing of them. Alexander had this to say about the end of the Petersburg siege. At dawn on the morning of Sunday, April 2nd, General Lee was waked by the noise of the tremendous fighting, and very soon the news of the capture of the lines at the points described was brought to him. General A.P. Hill was also aroused by the noise, and mounting his horse started to the scene, near the Boynton Road. He met the skirmishers of the already successful enemy and was shot. Poor fellow, he was an ideal soldier and deserved a better fate. Now onward to the final days uh, and on to Appomattox Courthouse. Lee was about to surrender the Army of Northern Virginia to Grant and came to discuss this with Alexander as follows. So when the General said, in effect, that it was impossible to cut our way out, I spoke from my heart as follows. Well, sir, then we have only two alternatives to choose from. We must either surrender or the Army may, may be ordered to scatter to the woods and bushes and either to r- rally upon General Johnston in North Carolina or to make their way each man to his own state with his arms and report to his governor. This last course is the one which seems to me to offer the best, uh, m- much of the best chances. Well, said General Lee, what would you hope to accomplish by that? Suppose I should take your suggestion and order the Army to disperse, And make their way to their homes. The men would have no rations and would be under no discipline. They are already demoralized by four years of war. They would have to plunder and rob to procure subsistence. The country would be full of lawless bands in every part, and the state society would ensue from which it would take the country years to recover. Then the enemy's cavalry would pursue in the hopes of catching the principal officers, and wherever they went, there would be fresh rapine and destruction. And as for myself, while you young men might afford to go bushwhacking, the only proper and dignified course for me would be to surrender myself and take the consequences of my actions. But it is still early in the spring, and if the men can be Quietly and quickly return to their homes, there is time to plant crops and begin to repair the ravages of the war. That is what I must now try to bring about. I expect to meet General Grant uh, at 10 this morning in the rear of the army and to surrender this army to him. But, he said, with a faint sort of smile and, and with sympathy in his look and tone, for when he said, surrender, the tears would swell in my eyes in spite of all I could do. I can tell you for your comfort that General Grant will not demand un- unconditional surrender. He will give us honorable terms, as we have right to ask and expect. The men can go to their homes and will only be bound not to fight ag- uh, again until exchanged. Then, I thought, I never have known before what a big heart and brain our General had. "'I was so ashamed of having proposed to him "'such a foolish and wildcat scheme "'as my suggestion had been "'that I felt like begging him to forget "'he had ever heard it. "'Not only did my own little plan of running away "'if ever I saw a white flag vanish into thin air, "'but nothing could now have induced me "'to miss the opportunity of contributing "'by presence, example, and every means in my power "'to carry out the General's wishes.' in every respect. It seemed now an inestimable privilege to serve under him to the very last moment, and that no scene in the whole life of the Army of Northern Virginia would be more honorable than the one which was now to close its record. And I remembered that was four years to the hour since I started from old Fort Stellacom, Washington, to take my part in the war, and practically ended the happy and prosperous old army life which had lain before me. After the war, Alexander became a well-respected author. He wrote many magazine articles and published his military memoirs of a confederate, a critical narrative in 1907. This was praised by Douglas Southall Freeman as, quote, altogether the best critique of the operations of the Army of Northern Virginia, unquote. Edward Porter Alexander died on April 28, 1910, at the age of 74. And long after his death, it was realized that Alexander had produced these memoirs, which I've just detailed in part. Uh, They were edited and published posthumously in 1989 as Fighting for the Confederacy, the personal recollections of General Edward Porter Alexander, edited by Gary Gallagher. Now join me next time when we will discuss Union General George Armstrong Custer.